All right, I printed out probably more notes than we needed, but just kind of a simple outline for tonight so that you can track. But also, if you flip it over, on the back, there are numerous scripture passages out of John 13, 14, 15, 16, and one verse from 17. Uh, the little blue is kind of my little commentary. I was just kind of trying to think through and, and catalog a little bit of the theology of John right here in these texts on the the love and Christ's love for or our expectation that we love. And so I just did a quick quick little survey. I, I didn't include all of them. There's about two or three verses that have the word love in it that don't occur in this little sampling. Then I'm going to read through these, and then we're going to focus on John 15. And remember through like our study, what we're going to be looking at is Christ's example for us. I mean, if we're called to be Christian, Christ-like, or um, if we are even to think in terms of godliness, God's character is made known through Christ. And so Christ um, not only is incarnate in the sense that he's made flesh, but in doing so, he gives us a real human example to be like. I mean, he is God's character manifested for us. And so I, I think I, I'd mentioned before, sometimes we talk about being like gospel-centered. I, I think that's, that's definitely a good way to think through a lot of things. But at the end of the day, the gospel is merely the story of God's rescue through Christ. So, so if we're going to be gospel-centered, at the end of the day, what are we going to truly be? Christ-like. You know, we're going we're gonna to reflect those attributes of God we see in the gospel. Okay, so John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I, like, I just find Christ's love so compelling. This is the introduction to him washing their feet. And so he is going to die. He is going to be betrayed that night. He is going to suffer under the um, kind of kangaroo court, the false trial, the abuse, the persecution, and then ultimately be crucified in under 24 hours. And he is pausing to love the men that are with him and wash their feet and disciple them and train them and preach them and pray with them and love them as he's getting ready to die. I can tell you, um, I would probably, if I knew I was dying tomorrow, I might have said, hey, Phil, can you preach Sunday night? I'm going to spend time with my family. <laughs> like, the, the idea that I would, I would spend time with people serving them when my death is imminent is, is just kind of like one of those like, huh. Jesus loved them to the end. It's just an incredibly sweet statement. John 13, 23. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table um, by Jesus' side. Uh, just simply, Jesus loved John. John is probably the author. That's why he says one of his disciples. He doesn't want to name himself. You know, sometimes we're that way in stories. Um, we, we really don't want to kind of put ourselves out, especially if we look bad. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So simply, Jesus loves his disciples, truly loves them. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love motivates obedience, would be my summary. Verse 21 of John 14, and then verses 23 and 24. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. 
Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So like I would just say this is not concerning unbelievers. We're not saying unbelievers get God's love by obedience. I just want to be really crystal clear on that. He's talking to those who are disciples. So um, our love is proven by our understanding of God's commands and our obedience to them. He said in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them. So, I mean, to me, like, it's one of the helpful things about that is the thought that I am accountable to learn and know and hold God's commands. I'm not just accountable to do them. Have you ever met a Christian and they're like, oh, I didn't know I was supposed to do that? <laughs> that is not going to fly. We've got to know God's word, and, and that's sign of love is I love God by knowing and obeying. Um, John 14, 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Uh, just the disciples should not be sad that Jesus' uh, departure is soon. Uh, that loss is for them. Instead, they should rejoice because the one that they should love is returning to the glory at the Father's side. It, like, like, the prospect of Jesus going home to glory is something that's good for Jesus. It's actually good for the disciples, too, because the comforter is going to come. And they're sad because they're going to miss out on Jesus. So I, this might actually be comforting to someone, like, maybe at a funeral. Or maybe not right at the funeral, but at least in comforting a spouse. I mean, if you really had the choice, would you want to take any of your loved ones from heaven back to your presence? You know, like... I just want to see that conversation like, like, okay, now I'm back with you. I was with Jesus. Like, like, why would you ever want to rob heaven from any of your loved ones by bringing them back? You know, and Jesus is going to the Father and his disciples are sad about that. And Jesus says, hey, if you love me, you'd be happy for me. Um, John 14, 31. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. <clears throat> I think that's particularly insightful for our text tonight, so kind of tuck that one away in your pocket. Why does Jesus obey? Because he loves his Father. Okay, so we're going to get back to that one. So I'm going to skip John 15 because we're going to get to that in just a moment. Um, came down with me, John 16, 27. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So there's this particular precious love that only God's children receive. Right? Like, why does God love us? In some sense, as believers, because as his children, we love him and obey him. And I don't think it's causative in this sense. I don't think God says, oh, you love me, now I'll love you. Because scripture really clearly says we love him because he first loved us. Instead, when we look at a text like this, I think this is almost, well, it's giving us insight into the unique position of the believer. As lovers of God who are pursuing him, there is a special fatherly affection that rests on us. And the more we look like God and have his character, the more richly we abide in that love. That should encourage us to obey. I mean, maybe we could think of it this way, like the Old Testament to have like God's face shining on us. It's almost as though God's smiling on those who reflect his son's character back to himself. And then John 17, 26 this one really kind of had me going for a while, so this had took a little more work to think through. 
I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Okay, that, that, that also brings some reflection to the passage tonight, but before we get there, the goal that Jesus has is that by showing his disciples the Father, by revealing the Father to them, they may, la- may learn to, maybe I could say, replicate the Father's love as they see it expressed towards the Son. So like our tutor is nothing less than a Trinitarian love from Father to God the Son. And that as we learn of God's love for his Son, it then enables us, look, I will make it known so that, here's the result, the love which you have may be in them. So I learn of the Father so that as I see his love for the Son, that love would be reproduced in me, and it seems to be in the context of the community, for others within the community. So our tutor is the Father as he loves the Son. So that's why Jesus says, I'm going to make it known, and you notice a future tense. So if this is the night he's going to die, we're probably actually speaking about ministry within the ages to come through the Holy Spirit, revealing us the person and work of Christ and the Father's love for him through the ministry of the Spirit. I don't know if that made sense to any of you, but I would see verse 26 as a fulfillment, not just in the weeks after his death and then resurrection, but a fulfillment that probably seems to be ongoing within the church. That is, Jesus would still look at himself as making the Father known to us so that we can reproduce the Father's love to one another. Like, it's a pretty compelling like, package of uh, like preaching on love that Jesus is giving within just a few moments to his disciples. I don't know if any of you have noticed that before in, in John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, as Jesus is preparing the disciples for his departure, how much he presses on them to love one another. So if you turn your page over, I want to focus on John 15. I think uh, the, the text I'm going to look at tonight mostly gets kind of overshadowed by I am the vine, you are the branches text. So let's go to John 15 together. We'll look at it, and Lord willing, be encouraged by Jesus' ministry of teaching his disciples. So, he's getting ready to pass away. And I I can imagine, I mean, just putting it in the context of myself, if I knew that the Lord gave me only a few um, moments to live, whether it's days or weeks, I would definitely try to do a full data dump on my family. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Like, like, here's what I want you to know. I'd be writing them letters. I'd probably write each of my child letters for them to open on their birthday for the next handful of years if I knew I had a couple weeks. You know what I mean? Like, I would work hard to give my children everything I could before I'm gone if I knew I was going to be gone. Wouldn't you? So here's Jesus doing that. It's kind of like, okay, I'm getting ready to turn the corner and and... And, and be crucified, and my ministry and everything about it is going to transition to like probably church work, but I need to equip you and call you men to faithfulness and to love with one another. So he says in 15.1, I am the vine. Right? I am the true vine, actually. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may be, bear more fruit. Okay, so just a couple observations. Uh, genuine believers bear fruit. People who don't bear fruit prove they're unbelievers. It's kind of, I think, fairly clear in the text. 
Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Let me just suggest, I, I think at least he's calling on the disciples to recognize there's a mutual work of walking with Christ. Christ ministers to them, empowers them so that they're um, being granted the supply necessary for fruitfulness. But that doesn't happen passively. The disciples are called to abide in him. To, so that they're, he says, abide in me and I in you. So, so Christ is going to supply to the disciples, but the disciples must lean into it. Right? It's mutual work to abide with Christ. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that, and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Again, I think a, a fairly simple reference to hell and making clear that God, God's people produce godly fruit. If anyone does not abide in me, he's on the fire, excuse me, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I think he's suggesting to us that prayer is a, a, a product or a fruit of that abiding relationship. And I would say a rich prayer life in which we commune with God and see him work. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now in verse 9, I think he's teaching almost the exact same thing with a little more clarity and he's walking away from the vine branch metaphor. Look what he says in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Now he says abide in my love, but if you go back to you know, verse 1, verse 3, or excuse me, verse uh, 4, he's saying abide in me. Now he's saying abide in, I don't think there's a significant difference. I think maybe the focus is different. But the same way, I, I could probably say it this way, to abide in Christ is to abide in his love. And if you were to abide in his love, you are necessarily abiding in him. So I find verses 9, 10, and 11 really instructive because when someone says, hey, you just need to abide in Jesus, I'm, I don't know what they mean. Have you, have you ever felt like that before? Um, I, I, you know, I've read enough Christian books in my life, and they make the Christian walk metaphorical, and I'm, I'm left scratching my head going, I, I think I want what you're offering, but I have no idea what you actually mean. Right, so if someone just like talks about abiding, abide in Jesus, I'm like, okay, I know I need to do that. I want to do that. Can you tell me how to abide in Jesus? Just abide. That's not how. You just like maybe feel like I need to do it more, but I know I need to do it. It's like, well, yeah, you just like abide in him and he'll abide in you. I'm like, you still haven't answered how. And so I, I Verse 9, I think he takes the disciples and he starts showing them how. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now, I'm, I'm seeing in this, I'm going to pull out one of those Christ-like characteristics that we should be like. Who does Christ love in verse 9? What? He says, as the Father loves me, I have loved you. So, so just, I just want to pull it out and put a pin in it. We are, we are talking about Christ's characteristic of loving us in verse 9, just as a, like in our series. But as we're looking at this text, we see a fatherly love to the Son, and then we see the Son, Jesus Christ, love to his followers. And he's saying, I learned how to love my Father, 
And now I show that love to you so that you can learn it. And you're going to see what happens then in verses 11 and 12, I think. So, the Father's loved me. Now he says then, again, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Verse 10, he starts to pull it apart a little bit for us. Did you catch that? So it says, abide in my love. So I could say our first point is this. Abide in Christ's love as he abides in his Father's love. Right? Abide in Christ's love. And I'm still left with this thing. I feel like the metaphor still doesn't, like, is anyone else like, okay, you said, like, abide in the vine. Now you say abide in his love. I still don't know what we're doing here. Anyone else feel like that? Okay, so that's where I think that, that next line really helps us. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So how do you abide in, in, in the Savior's love? How do you abide in him? He says obey. So like, man, we could go right down Pharisee Road if we're not careful with this, right? So let's not go there because we know that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, hey, be a Pharisee. I mean, he has enough like, you know, moments where he and the Pharisees are locking horns for us to know that that's not where he's going. What is he telling us to do? Again, context, what is the attitude with which we come into obedience? Love. This affection and loyalty and devotion both to the person and his cause. Right? If, if, if I love my children and I'm watching, let's say I have a little four-year-old and he's riding his bike and I see him go down on our cul-de-sac asphalt hard. I'm not like, I guess I have to go help him. <laughs> like if he goes down hard, I'm running. Right? Like, I am going to go take care of my little boy. I don't even have to wait for him to yell, Daddy. Right? Like, it's not like, oh, well, he called for me. I guess I have to. It is, it is a sense in which my care for him would drive me, not even, not even to think about the inconvenience, but what would be filling my mind and heart if he goes down hard on asphalt? What is my mind thinking? Like, I'm, I'm wondering if he's Okay. If he's injured, I'm wondering, I mean, like, for one, if a kid goes down hard, a lot of times they're quiet, right? When they come up hollering, it's like you just want attention. When they go down and they're quiet for a moment, you're like, oh, boy, because, because they're gathering it. They're, they're figuring it out. They don't even know what's hurting. They're just hurting. But I'm not sitting there going, like, I am so tired. I had a long day at work. I don't even know if I want to walk out to the street. I'm going to take care because I love. So if we, if we come back to the text and we, we ask ourselves, what are, what are moments where we truly love people and it moves us? It generally doesn't move us with a grudging, legalistic, sterile obedience. It's, it's a somewhat selfless, natural obedience. And, and maybe I would say, just to make sure we don't get the wrong idea, a, a supernatural obedience, that is, it's, it, it flows from the affection it doesn't come down as something that feels imposed, but comes, comes from a motivation of care and, and love within. So if I'm going to abide in Christ's love, I need to have an affection and loyalty to the person of Christ so that I do what he would want me to do. Do you remember chapter 14, verse 31? I said, put it in your pocket. Do you remember what Jesus says? 
Oh, you guys did not actually like keep it close at hand in your minds. What does Jesus do? He, he does what his father commands. Why? Because he loves his father and he wants the world to see his love for the father leads him to do what his father wants him to do. Uh, you can also look at, at uh, chapter 17, verse 4, that he's done the will of the father and glorified him. Jesus Christ obeys the father. Was all that obedience easy for him? Absolutely not. Right? We see the garden and it really gives us insight to um, maybe qualifying the idea that that love does cause us to do things that are unpleasant because that love is so, um, maybe I can say compelling. I think that's what 2 Corinthians 5 uses as a word. It, it compels us to move. So if I want to abide in the vine, if I want to abide in Christ's love, then out of affection for my Savior and loyalty to him, I will move to his commands and learn of them. That really helps me. Because it, it demystifies the cloudiness of abiding in the vine for, for at least for, for my simple mind. Um, I, I think we also look at this text, and he says, like, I've kept my Father's commandments, right? If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So he's giving us that same foundation. He's not speaking to faith. I think we could add that in as a necessary corollary of love. You're not going to love Christ if you don't also trust in him. Right? You're not going to have a true affection for the Savior if you don't already have that, that commitment and obedience to him that comes from faith. Okay, so abide in Christ's love as you abide in the Father's love. Number two, experience joy as Christ experienced joy. Now, I, I love this because this also helps me understand obedience better. Right, so he, he says, obey as I have obeyed. Verse 11 then, these things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy might be full. Now I can just tell you, when I tell my kids that we're going to talk about obedience, they're not thinking, oh good, that's going to lead to joy. <laughs> when we think of like, we need to obey the word of God and obey God's commands, that can feel heavy. That can feel like regulated and restrictive. But here, our Savior says, I'm actually talking about abiding in my love, leading to, or, or maybe as a result of, a, a loyalty and affection for my word and obeying my word. And the fruit of that in your life is going to be joy. To me, that's stunning. Now, let me just give you an analogy. I, I've done uh, a little bit of marriage counseling over the last year and a half. Um, yeah, yeah, really. Um, in fact, I, I did some premarital counseling last week over Zoom, and I, I enjoy it. It's always, um, it's always a blessing in multiple different ways. Uh, some of it's very convicting as I'm, I'm telling these, you know, soon-to-be newlyweds um, to make sure they do certain disciplines, and I'm thinking, I really need to pay attention to my marriage and to my wife and things like that. But, but it's, it's such an experience of encouragement to watch two people who truly love each other get the privilege of marriage and move towards that marriage in goodness. Generally speaking, when I call that young man to care for his wife, he's not feeling very um, resistant to that command. I'm like, hey, you need to care for her and, and 
uh, pay attention to her needs? And he's like, yeah. 25 years later, when I'm trying to make a, like, help a marriage not fall apart, and I'm like, hey, you need to pay attention to her needs. He's like, seriously? She tells me her needs all the time on repeat. Now, the, just the difference there to me is, is instructive. Like, here's a young man who's just looking with this overwhelming joy at the prospect of marrying this woman. And I say, hey, and you pay attention to her needs. He's like, man, I can't wait. You tell a guy who's struggled and hurt and injured and hurting and injuring in return, you say, pay attention to her needs. And it's like I've just asked him to hold his hand over burning fire for two minutes. It's like self-inflicted injury. Why would I pay attention to her? But what I can tell them with confidence is that when marriage is done right, that sacrifice of caring for your wife is deeply satisfying to the husband. That as he gives himself for his wife, like Christ did for the church, that it will lead him to better, happier results that will actually be, if he were to be this way, self-serving. I mean, we've all heard kind of the analogy of like happy wife, happy life. And I know that's not scripture, but there is a sense in which when this guy figures it out and walks with Christ and serves his wife, he actually serves himself and it leads to joy. Now, how much more when we have a perfect Savior and we have the all-satisfying hope of his presence with us, When we abandon selfishness and serve his interests, do you think he is able to grant us the gift of joy? But it's counterintuitive. It calls for an abandonment of what makes sense by our own perception and a trust that he actually gives joy. I mean, did you think joy was something you gained by pursuing it, or do you think it's something given by the Spirit? Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And, and then we have these passages in Scripture like the Thessalonians, like out of much affliction and joy, right? It was 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, that they received the gospel in much affliction with joy. So, so like we can sometimes measure joy as like a circumstantial response. Like, man, life is good. Life is smooth. Bank account's full. Kids are awesome. Life is good. Therefore, I have joy. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. We know, we know better, but man, oh man, we forget that in, in our exchange of values and choices in life. So again, going to the text here, what leads to joy? Yeah, and, and man, obedience without context is brutal here. So like context, abiding in the love of Christ, walking in his love as we obey him leads to joy. Right, we just say obedience. Again, we might be walking down Pharisee trail here. And I, I want to make sure we avoid that because we're not just talking about like do this, do that, do that, you get joy. This is, God is not a vending machine. Okay, so, so he is giving it to us that his joy might be in us, that our joy might be full. Um, then we come to the, the last section here where he kind of moves and advances his thought one step further. He says that we abide in his joy, that our joy might be full. Verse 12 now. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Now he's just said, here's how you abide in my love, keep my commands. 
And then he says, oh, by the way, here's this command for you. <laughs> What's the command? To love whom? To love one another. Who are the one another's in the New Testament? God's people, fellow disciples. One another is not like love the world, like in some like, you know, peace movement where we're singing kumbaya together. This is, this is a call for us to love God's people. Now, again, this doesn't mean like, you know, you walk by some random person on the street and you're pretty sure they're unsafe, so you just punch them. You know, like, we, we don't have to have any anti-love for people who aren't in the family of Christ. But I find this incredibly convicting because it feels like in our modern church era, this note of responsibility is never sung. Here's what I mean. Most megachurches, most church growth types of churches, aren't challenging the people sitting in their chairs to die for the sake of the person next to them. In fact, about the only call of sacrifice you'll hear in many churches is, please just open up your wallets. And maybe a soft call to come back next week and open them up again. Because what makes the church move in the modern, I mean, sadly, the modern church oftentimes is a motivational speaker and a ministry that's making money and doing some good in the community, but not like gospel good oftentimes. And the attendees pay their, their dues so that the machine can keep moving. Again, go, go to verse 12. Love one another as I have loved you. So we get two ways in which Christ is showing us his example in this text. His love for the disciples, his obedience. And now he says, I am making this clear. Here's my command, love one another. Now, he's, I mean, he in other places will call us to love our spouses, and, and I think it's assumed that we love our children. I don't think any other obligation outside of loving God is repeated as emphatically or as frequently as the call to love God's people. How deeply should you love God's people? Verse 13. Because who does? Right? Christ lays down his life. Now, now I have had people push on me before say, well, it's greater love, Romans makes clear to love your enemies, right? Romans 5, like Christ loved us when we were enemies. But that kind of misses the point. Christ is speaking to his friends. So he's dying for his friends. He's dying for his disciples, the ones he loves. And he's like, this is the greatest love you can have for a friend. I mean, I, theoretically, I suppose we could unfriend each other and hate each other, then die for each other, and that make the love greater? But that's bizarre, right? The greatest love I can have for someone who's already a friend is to die for them. And if they're a brother or sister in Christ, they are already in that friend category. And so if that, is the, if that is where the line stops on God's expectation for me, everything inside of that is expected. So I'm going to be like Christ by abiding in the Father's love, experiencing joy as I walk in the obedience to the Father's commands or the Lord's commands, and then particularly taking care to express that in devotion to the church of Christ. And then I'm abiding in the vine. I'm walking in the presence of my Savior and experiencing his joy. And I think that would also then fill out, like, what am I praying for? 
right? Like I, I, we go back, is it verse 7? If you abide in me and my words abide in you. So think about it this way. Abiding in his love so that his words abide in me, which would speak to obedience, then my prayer life becomes a manifestation of that pursuit of others' good as I abide in Christ. All right, so as we look at the example of Christ, we, we didn't get into the tangibles here of Christ washing feet. I think that's something we'll save for another week, which will be, um, I'm looking forward to spending a little bit of time on the foot washing moment with Jesus. There's a couple lines in there that are always challenging to me. You know, where Peter's like, hey, wash all of me. And Jesus is like, no, you're good. Like, what, what does Jesus really mean there? Like, I've already taken care of you. Um, so we'll look at that in the coming weeks. But I, I think that example of service is just so rich and sweet. Here's the king of kings. The one who holds the whole universe together by the word of his power. Grabbing a towel, getting on the floor, and washing feet, including Judas's. Because he loved people. And he says, come, be like me. Love those who follow after me. Abide in my joy. Go on the pathway to joy. Walk in the love of Christ. Hopefully this is encouraging to you. I, I find this text particularly in John 15 just a repeated refreshment in my soul. I probably preach from this, not this particular text, but this passage of abiding the vine almost as much as most other passages. Maybe the Great Commission has gotten me more because... I feel a frequent need to remind our church of what we're on this earth for. Um, But this is one of those rich texts that should be worn well in all our Bibles. Um, Hopefully it is in yours.